Chapter Thirteen of the Expedition of the Donner Party and Its Tragic Fate. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Expedition of the Donner Party and Its Tragic Fate by Eliza P. Donner Houghton. Chapter Thirteen A Fateful Cabin. Mrs. Murphy Gives Motherly Comfort. The Great Storm. Half a Biscuit. Arrival of Third Relief. Where is my boy? How can I describe that fateful cabin, which was dark as night to us who had come in from the glare of day? We heard no word of greeting and met no sign of welcome, but were given a dreary resting place near the foot of the steps, just inside the open doorway, with a bed of branches to lie upon and a blanket to cover us. After we had been there a short time, we could distinguish persons on other beds of branches, and a man with bushy hair reclining beside a smoldering fire. Soon a child began to cry, Give me some bread, oh, give me some meat. Then another took up the same pitiful wail. It continued so long that I wept in sympathy, and fastened my arms tightly around my sister Frances's neck, and hid my eyes against her shoulder. Still I heard that hungry cry until a husky voice shouted, be quiet, you crying children, or I'll shoot you. But the silence was again and again broken by that heart-rending plea, and again and again were the voices hushed by the same terrifying threat. And we three, fresh from our loving mother's embrace, believed the awful menace no vain threat. We were cold and too frightened to feel hungry, nor were we offered food that night, but next morning Mr. Reed's little daughter Mattie appeared carrying in her apron a number of newly baked biscuits which her father had just taken from the hot ashes of his campfire. Joyfully she handed one to each inmate of the cabin, then departed to join those ready to set forth on the journey to the settlement. Few can know how delicious those biscuits tasted, and how carefully we caught each dropping crumb. The place seemed drearier after their giver left us, yet we were glad that her father was taking her to her mother in California. Soon the great storm which had been lowering broke upon us. We were not exposed to its fury as were those who had just gone from us, but we knew when it came, for snow drifted upon our bed and had to be scraped off before we could rise. We were not allowed near the fire and spent most of our time on our bed of branches. Dear, kind Mrs. Murphy, who for months had taken care of her own son Simon, and her grandson George Foster, and little James Eddy, gave us a share of her motherly attention, and tried to feed and comfort us. Affliction and famine, however, had well nigh sapped her strength, and by the time those plaintive voices ceased to cry for bread and meat, her willing hands were too weakened to do much for us. I remember being awakened while there by two little arms clasped suddenly and tightly around me, and I heard Frances say, No, she shall not go with you. You want to kill her. Near us stood Keseberg, the man with the bushy hair. In limping past our sleeping place, he had stopped and said something about taking me away with him, which so frightened my sisters that they believed my life in danger, and would not let me move beyond their reach while we remained in that dungeon. We spoke in whispers, suffered as much as the starving children in Joseph's time, and were more afraid than Daniel in the den of lions. How long the storm had lasted we did not know, nor how many days we had been there. 
we were forlorn as children can possibly be, when Simon Murphy, who was older than Francis, climbed to his usual lookout on the snow above the cabin to see if any help were coming. He returned to us, stammering in his eagerness, I seen a woman on snowshoes coming from the other camp. She's a little woman, like Mrs. Donner. She's not looking this way, and may pass. Hardly had he spoken her name before we had gathered around him and were imploring him to hurry back and call our mother. We were too excited to follow him up the steps. She came to us quickly, with all the tenderness and courage needed to lessen our troubles and soften our fears. Oh, how glad we were to see her, and how thankful she appeared to be with us once more. We heard it in her voice and saw it in her face, and when we begged her not to leave us, she could not answer, but clasped us closer to her bosom, kissed us anew for father's sake, then told how the storm had distressed them. Often had they hoped that we had reached the cabins too late to join the relief, then in grieving anguish felt that we had, and might not live to cross the summit. She had watched the fall of snow and measured its depth, had seen it drift between the two camps, making the way so treacherous that no one had dared to cross it until the day before her own coming. Then she induced Mr. Clark to try to ascertain if Mr.s Katie and Stone had really got us to the cabins in time to go with the second relief. We did not see Mr. Clark, but he had peered in, taken observations, and returned by nightfall and described to her our condition. John Baptiste had promised to care for father in her absence. She left our tent in the morning as early as she could see the way. She must have stayed with us overnight, for I went to sleep in her arms, and they were still around me when I awoke. And it seemed like a new day, for we had time for many cherished talks. She veiled from us the ghastliness of death, telling us Aunt Betsy and both our little cousins had gone to heaven. She said Louis had been first to go, and his mother had soon followed, that she herself had carried little Sammy from his sick mother's tent to ours the very day we three were taken away, and in order to keep him warm while the storm raged, she had laid him close to father's side, and that he had stayed with them till day before yesterday. I asked her if Sammy had cried for bread. She replied, no, he was not hungry, for your mother saved two of those little biscuits which the relief party brought, and every day she soaked a tiny piece in water and fed him all he could eat, and there is still half a biscuit left. How big that half biscuit seemed to me! I wondered why she had not brought at least a part of it to us. While she was talking with Mrs. Murphy, I could not get it out of my mind. I could see that broken half biscuit with its ragged edges, and knew that if I had a piece, I would nibble off the rough points first. The longer I waited, the more I wanted it. Finally, I slipped my arm around mother's neck, drew her face close to mine, and whispered, What are you going to do with the half-biscuit you saved? I am keeping it for your sick father, she answered, drawing me closer to her side, laying her comforting cheek against mine, letting my arm keep its place and my fingers stroke her hair. The two women were still talking in subdued tones, pouring the oil of sympathy into each other's gaping wounds. Neither heard the sound of feet on the snow above, neither knew that the third relief party was at hand, until Mr. Eddy and Mr. Foster came down the steps, and each asked anxiously of Mrs. Murphy, 
Where is my boy? Each received the same sorrowful answer. Dead. End of chapter 13